I think a safe bet, uh, safe venture to guess that probably very few of us can appreciate the roller coaster of kind of emotions uh, that the disciples experienced during their last day or two uh, with Jesus in the days that followed, right? They'd, at this point, where we are in John, we're in John 16. At this point, they'd been up all night. They'd had no food since the Last Supper because it was the last. Uh, supper that they had with Christ. And so it, it's kind of in this state that they're in. And I don't know if you've been in that state of high stress, high hunger, but it's not a great place to be. Uh, and so they're in that state that they then experience a whirlwind of just other things that happen. Uh, they, they leave the upper room. They exit Jerusalem in the dark. They climb the Mount of Olives, right? They go on a little hike with Jesus in this moment. They, of course, have this prayer vigil at Gethsemane, uh, maybe you're familiar with. We're going to get to some of that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, they see Jesus repeatedly cast himself down in prayer. They see him defeated and, and what seems like uh, despondent, right? Your leader is like doesn't know what to do, apparently. And, and then there's, of course, Peter's denial, his curses. All of that stuff is happening. And then lo- not long after that, literally just hours Um, the events that lead to Golgotha and the death of Jesus, who is the Christ, right? This is a big deal for them. Uh, This is misery, confusion, sorrow that we don't have words for. Like we have sounds for that kind of stuff, but not really words. Um, But then within three days after that, there's probably no words to describe the joy that reappears, right? Right? Uh, Three days after Jesus' death, the disciples learn again that he's alive. Uh, Matthew describes in his gospel um, just sheer ecstasy of the first two preachers of the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus who happen to be women, uh, Mary and Martha. And so Matthew says this in Matthew 28, 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples now, the Greek word there in Matthew that gets translated as great joy is, is the word mega, right? So literally, it's mega joy that they have from this point, low point to this mega joy. And then think about what it was like when Mary and Martha bust in the room and they find the disciples there in what you would expect, kind of mourning, right? And they bring this news of joy that it's one of those situations where you hope this is going to happen especially because Jesus told you it was going to happen, but you're also feeling defeated. Like we've all been there, right? You're hoping beyond hope that this, it doesn't go this way. And they actually experience that utter joy. The only thing, and this is, feel, feels offensive to even compare it to this, but the only thing I can kind of even remotely compare this to is if you've ever loved a sports team and they're in a championship game and they're down by three and then they come back and win. That turn of events is a shadow of what I think they experience in this moment that what seems absolutely gone, he's dead, he's gone, they come and say he's, he's alive. And I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where joy is so 
impactful that people just make weird noises. You ever been in that room, like a baby gets born and people are making like just guttural noises because there isn't words for that, or right, cheers when something happens? I imagine that this room is full of that. There's gasps. There's just, ah, they can't believe it. They don't have words. And so the disciples, they've been thrown down to the depths of despair, but then in a few hours, they get lifted up to the mountaintop of joy, right? So imagine the like weight on them and then the release of that. They, they must have been, you know, we would say that they, they must have pinched themselves. Like this can't be real. And so their emotions had gone the full spectrum from like agony to sheer ecstasy. And so their joy, because that was the path to joy for them, their joy was deeper and, and, and stronger and more profound than any joy they had ever known. And, and you probably know this from your own life experience. This is something that happens as we get a little bit older, out of our teens and 20s, and we start to experience like life, like real life, where things don't go right and, and life is hard. But you get through that to the other side and you have something in you. Like if you've ever been around a Christian person who has been through profound suffering, I... It's, it's like they either go completely bitter or they get really holy. And if you've ever been around this kind of person, there's just something about that, that that path to joy had to go through suffering. And so sorrow and joy is part of what we're going to look at today from John 16. So I'm going to read the text for us, and I'm going to invite you to do something. I'm going to pray after that, and we'll dig in. But I want to invite you to stand for, God's, for the reading of God's word. This is a tradition uh, we don't do that often, but it's a tradition we see all over the history of the church. So go ahead and stand up. And this is a bodily expression of reverence, respect for the reality that we're about to hear. Like, think, think about it. We're about to hear God speak to us. Doubly so in this text, because it's mostly red letters. Jesus is speaking. And so this is a chance not only for us to show respect, but also a chance for us to bring our full attention into this moment, right? All the other things that are going on, when we come in here and we hear God speak to us, we bring all of that to him. If you're watching online, I want to invite you to stand as well. And I'm going to uh, bring this word to us and I want to invite you to bring all of your attention, your whole self, mind, soul, but also body into this moment together. It's not that we're just individually hearing from God, but that we are hearing from God. This is John 16, verses 16 to 33. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will see me, and again a little while and you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. I feel like that's the experience of every disciple of Jesus sometimes. I don't know what he's talking about. And I love that I get to relate to that in here. Verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for, that, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Some of us need to just hear that sentence. The Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and am going to the Father. And his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it was preserved in these words. We thank you that we get to read it and partake of it and take it in. I pray that it would become a daily practice for us to hear from you through your word and through your spirit as you indwell us. So we ask now that you would uh, open our eyes to see what you want us to see and make our hands to do what you want them to do as we leave this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Oh, if you guys didn't get some coffee this morning, go ahead. Sandy, thank you. Great job. Let's start at verse 20. Truly, truly, John 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. I wonder how this verse would land in an underground church in Afghanistan this morning, right? The scriptures teach us in other places that Jesus himself also experienced this same transformation from sorrow to joy. His deepest sorrow became his greatest source of joy. Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, which is good news for us because we're acquainted with grief. But then Hebrews 12, 2 describes him as one who, quote, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. The miracle of the cross transforms sorrow into joy for Jesus and for us, his disciples. We are crucified with Christ. And so if the cross of Christ transforms sorrow into joy for him, then it's the same miracle on offer for us this morning. So, so much of the spiritual frustration that I think I see around me in, in different people, uh, many of them are not believers, right? The spiritual frustration is people holding to a promise that God never actually made. God never promised to keep every sorrow away from you. He never said that. He never said, if you come to me, everything will be great. He, he has promised to take that sorrow and to bring a depth of joy to you that you didn't even know you could have, right? I'm gonna use the example of my own story. You, you think of this event in your life or this point in your life where I can point to a specific season in my life where I experienced the most profound heartbreak and sadness I have yet to experience, which taught me that I should expect that in the future, that it's not an odd thing when that happens. But, but when I experienced the, the most 
sad, heartbreaking thing I've ever experienced before. I never knew sad, sadness like that. Like I knew some sadness, I knew what sadness was, but I hadn't experienced it like that before. And I know that, again, many of us have certain memories that are burned into your head that are filled with this, right? I can remember those moments in the parking lot of a cracker barrel when the depth of sadness came over me that I had not experienced before. And I can still, to this day, feel that emotion. It's not gone, It doesn't just go away, but what came out of that for me was also a depth of joy that I had not experienced before because it was that season of sadness and pain that led to one of the deepest seasons of abiding that I've ever experienced, that it pushed me into, I don't have anywhere else to go, Jesus. You're going to have to bring something to me. In the Alliance, we call this an experience, a crisis experience of pain, right? Jesus didn't take that pain away from me. Instead, he took it on himself. He used it to do something in me that I could not have gotten any other way. And see, that's what following Jesus is like. You follow him on the road to Calvary. You take up your cross daily and you follow him, trusting you also to lead you somehow on the road to resurrection power. The road to to follow Jesus is the road to Calvary, which is also the road to resurrection. In verse 21, Jesus uses this example of giving birth to illustrate what the disciples' transforming experience would be like. He says this, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, obviously, Jesus did not mean that after a lady gives birth, she can't remember any of the pain. He obviously had spoken to women in his time, right? His mother in particular, I'm sure, told him, eh, I remember. But what he's saying is that the joy of this new child sort of pushes that pain into the background. And, you know, we could use a million examples, But the joy of that new child pushes that pain in the background. And so for the true believer in Jesus, the sorrows of life are, and I totally mean the pun here, they are pregnant with potential joy, right? We see this in the lives of, of biblical heroes. Pick your Old Testament biblical hero. Moses spends 40 years of discouragement and pain, and that's followed by 40 years of really powerful ministry, which also has a lot of frustration and pain in it, but powerful ministry. Abraham and Sarah's deep, deep sorrow over her barrenness ultimately ends in joyous singing, the kind of singing you can't sing unless you go through the pain. The reality then is that your present difficulties are the garden soil of potential joy, right? Now, we have to say that some of us will never know complete joy until we're with the Lord. Some of that joy is not going to be fully realized until we're with Jesus. But even in life on earth, our sorrows bear the potential of this transforming deeper joy that Jesus wants for us. In in your broken family, in this time of sickness, whatever it is, our difficulties bring us new joys if they lead us back to Jesus. So let's keep going here because verse 22, Jesus tells the disciples that his joy is not just a future reality, but it's a present reality. 
Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. And the disciples experienced exactly what Jesus predicted. This is why one of his later disciples, Paul, could write something from prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He's writing that to the church at Philippi from prison. Right? And so he, Paul, reiterated variations of that thought 10 times in that epistle in in Philippians alone. Nothing could take his joy away from him. That's the experience of faithful believers. One famous author said this, they have joy and comfort that the angels cannot give and that evils cannot take. This is the joy and the comfort of the underground Afghan church that the Taliban cannot take from them. They can take their life, but they cannot take joy in Christ. But we also have to remember so often that joy, that, that deep, deep joy, that when you get around somebody who has that, you want to stay around that. You want to learn from that. You want to experience more of that. That deep, deep joy that transcends and completes what we might otherwise call happiness. And I don't think joy and happiness are like opposed to one another, but that joy is maybe a deeper, more profound version of that emotion we call happiness. That joy so often rises up out of the ashes of sorrow. Let's use relationships as an example. Have you ever been in a relationship with a friend or a close relative or something where you go through a time of pain, you go through a time of conflict and you, and you stay in and you resolve it and you reconcile, your relationship has a deeper level of connectedness on the other side of that than it ever could have before. And that's also true when it comes to our joy. See, Jesus shared these words with his disciples, not only because the cross was literally only a few hours away from these words being spoken. I mean, I know even in my experience, and I'm sure in your experience, we're experiencing the gospel of John like really spread out over time. But this is all happening very quickly now. So he not only shared these words because the cross was just a few hours away, but because he knew that their lives after he was gone would be filled with difficulty, filled with continuing struggles. He warns them of this, both in the opening and in the closing verses of John chapter 16. That's why along with the promise of sorrow being turned into joy, Jesus also spoke about maintaining that transforming joy and that peace by a few things that he describes next, which is really, I think, just a more detailed explanation, a continuation of what he has just said about abiding in him in chapter 15. He's just continuing to teach. Verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. What day? What day is he? He's talking about that day in the future when things are restored. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, something interesting is happening here. Before the cross, the disciples either asked Jesus directly or they asked Uh, prayed to the Father as Jesus taught them in 
Matthew, in Matthew chapter 6, he says, our Father in heaven. You remember Jesus said, pray like this, our Father in heaven. And so after the cross, there's this sort of new thing that gets inaugurated where the disciples are supposed to now ask in Jesus' name. That's why today we pray in Jesus' name, right? We end our prayers with in Jesus' name, amen. It's not a, a religious trite thing that we do. It's, it's something that comes from our scriptures. And so what this isn't, though, is a license to just ask anything we want out of selfish desires and expect that God has to do it because we use the magic formula of Jesus' name. Dear Jesus, I really want a Bentley in Jesus' name. Amen. Like, that's not how it works, okay? And I don't really want a Bentley. Um, it's not a magic formula. It's not an incantation. Otherwise, we're witches, right? That's not what's going on here. Jesus is Lord. He is not an incantation for our selfishness and greed. He is king. He will not be had like that. He doesn't owe us anything. We can't put him in our debt. Well, Jesus, I said in Jesus' name, you got to do it now because you said. He's like, well, I'm Lord of the universe. So yes, we are to ask in Jesus' name, but that has everything to do with our joy being made full in him. But we have to also understand that asking in Jesus' name brings certain constraints with it, right? It brings certain guardrails around it. First, it means that we don't come in our own name. What does that mean? Uh, One Bible teacher said it this way, much modern prayer, even by serious Christian people, is useless and ineffective because the people involved approach God thinking that he is obliged to grant their requests because of something they themselves have done for him, right? This is the false idea behind when people will ask me to pray for them because I'm a pastor and they think I'm a holy man. And you guys know me, and you know the second part of that equation is not always true. I'm a man, but not always a holy man, right? But I am a pastor, and so people have this expectation, oh, well, you must have more pull with God. And that's just not how it works. God is not that like easily swayed. That's, not, that's just not what he wants. Praying in the name of Jesus means that we're coming on the basis of what he has done for us. Not because, well, I've been doing my quiet time now for three months, and so I don't understand why God's not answering my prayers. Because you're not praying in Jesus' name. You're praying in your name, thinking that your merit brings it to him. And so praying in the name of Jesus means coming on the basis of what he's done for us and never on what we think we have done for him. We have to just put to death, put, let it go, put it to death, the thought that God will hear us because we're virtuous. He hears us because he's virtuous. He hears us because he loves us. I don't listen to the cries of the baby in the night because she's a great baby. I listen to that because I'm a father who cares for her. Like she doesn't bring anything to the table except like needs to be fed and diapers changed. That's it. But there's a love there that can't be explained. And in the same way when you pray in Jesus' name, it's not because you're good at praying. It's because God is good at loving you and he wants to hear from you. 
We have to put to death the thought that God will answer us and hear us because of our virtue. We cannot come to him in our own name. As the opening verse of the Sermon on the Mount tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand that you are spiritually poor. You've got nothing. And that's the place of blessing. If we come in poverty of spirit, relying on Jesus and not ourselves, now we can expect our prayers to be answered. So you can come with expectation. The second part of praying in Jesus' name is have to pray in alignment with the character of Jesus and in alignment with his agenda. That's a tough one. But one way to think about praying in Jesus' name is that we're praying in his nature. One commentator said that, in his nature. This simply means that we are supposed to ask for what Jesus would want not our own desires, right? That's one of the pieces of discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus is being with Jesus and learning to do what Jesus would do if he were us. That's what being a disciple is. And so praying in Jesus' name means we want what Jesus wants. Sometimes we don't know what Jesus wants. And this is so key. Prayer is not a means by which we get God to do what we want. It's just not. It's a means by which God does what he wants through us. Prayer is not a way for you to get God to do what you want. It's a way for God to do what he wants to do through you. Oswald Chambers, who's a famous preacher, said it this way. The idea of prayer is not in order to get answers from God. Prayer is perfect and complete oneness with God. Why do we bring our requests to God? Because he cares for us. And it's knowing that he cares for us. That's the ultimate thing that we need for our own joy. So this happens when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and our hearts are abiding in Jesus so that we pray for those things that he desires for us. And it's a lifelong time of learning and fits and starts and stumbles. Maybe that feels unattainable. I don't know what Jesus wants. I don't know what to pray for. Like there's times when I don't have a clue. Well, Here's some good news for you from Romans 8.26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray. If you you haven't heard that text before, you haven't been reminded in a while, take a breath out. The Bible just outed us. We don't know what to pray for. It's all right. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us, for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, so there's a sense in which when we truly pray in Jesus' name, we are actually articulating the Holy Spirit's inner hidden intercession for us. And so as we pray in this nature, we find answers to our prayer and increased joy as an experience. And so that's, it's one of the paradoxes, the mysteries of following Jesus, that he transforms you and you didn't even see it happening. So the, here's the final piece in praying in Jesus' name. It's simple in name, but it's really difficult in practice. And that's just submitting ourselves. To Jesus. This is willful submission to Him as Lord. Right? We have to yield ourselves to the process of the cross and the resurrection. We like the resurrection, but we don't like the cross. But God has ordained that it's cross and then resurrection. 
death and life, sorrow than joy. And if we don't submit to this process, we're not submitting in Jesus' name. Here's a quote that I read this week that, that I know is true, but I really wish it wasn't true. But I know enough now to know that it is true. When God wants to use a person, he will take them and crush them. The path, the only path that will allow our sorrows to be turned to joy is faith in and submission to Jesus as Lord. And so the question for us is, are we fully submitting to Jesus in every area of our life, in our family life, in our spiritual walk, in our work, in our vocation, in our business, in our neighborhood, in our finances, in our sexuality, in our whatever you want to add to that list, are we submitting that to Jesus and saying, not my will, your will. Transform me, Jesus, into your image. Are we praying in his name? But, but look now at how Jesus answered prayer, how answered prayer brings joy in verse 24. He says this, until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So, so do you see the path of transformation here? Keep asking him, but ask him in his name as we've described. And what will happen is that you'll have more of Christ, more of his spirit in you. And therefore, you end up being transformed and filled with his joy, which is better than what you thought you were asking for anyway. This is what the disciples experienced, and it has been the repeated experience globally in Jesus' church throughout the centuries. This is the experience of countless believers. So what kind of prayer brings this kind of transformative joy? It's prayer in his name, praying in his merit with a sense of our poverty spiritually, our own unworthiness, praying in his nature, praying for his agenda, Becoming so attuned to him that we pray what we should pray if he were, what we would pray if he was praying. Submitting to his sovereign process of transforming sorrow into joy, saying, Jesus, I yield to you. I submit to you. You might need to pray that out loud in your prayer closet. Jesus, I submit my life to you. This is the resurrection joy, the, the mega joy that we see in the lives of the disciples. Now, for the sake of our time today, I just want to end with this question and the final words from Jesus here in this section. Jump down to verse 31. This is the central question of John's gospel. We could have spent a whole uh, bunch of time on your father really loves you, but we're going to jump down to verse 31, Jesus' question. Do you now believe? That is a question we all must face. If you're maybe watching online and you don't know Jesus, that's the question for you this morning. Do you now believe in Jesus? I want to emphasize the time sensitivity of this question for us. It isn't, have you believed in the past or did you believe a long time ago that this experience you had? One of my favorite current Bible teachers and authors loves to talk about how in, how in reality, all of us are unbelievers at some level. Now, don't hear me saying something I'm not, that there isn't a definitive line that we cross from unbelief into belief, from not part of God's family into God's family. That is absolutely true, that you are secure, and that that can never be taken from you. If you've been given new life in Christ, that can never go away. You cannot go back to being dead. But the question from Jesus is still so important. Do you now believe? 
That's a key question in relation to this joy-transforming process in our lives. Do you believe now? Do you now believe in Jesus? This is the ongoing question in respect to his call to joy-giving prayer. Do you now believe? That's the constant question in relation to his love. Do you now believe? So do you. Do you believe now in Jesus? It's with that that Jesus then speaks his final upper room words before his farewell prayer. Behold, this is verse 32 and 33. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. Such grace in those words. You're gonna betray me and leave me, but don't worry, I'm not alone. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And maybe one of the most important two sentences in the Bible for us to burn into our hearts. In this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble. Is another way to say it. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I have not pulled you out of the tribulation. I have not made the tribulation go away. I have overcome the world. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I think that for many of us who know this story, I lose sight of how audacious these words are from Jesus. In, in light of the fact of what's going to happen in the next few hours in Jesus' earthly life, these are incredibly courageous, spirit-filled, prophetic, audacious Words spoken in the face of demonic powers that are about to bring absolute dread to Jesus on our behalf. This is what Jesus says. How could he say such a thing at this moment? How could he have such confidence? How could he be so full of peace and joy and love knowing that's what's coming for him? Because he believed in the process he just outlined. He, he believed that his sorrow would be turned to joy. It was for the joy that was set before him. He believed that the disciples' sorrow also, and your sorrow and my sorrow, that in him that also will be turned to joy. And he believed that as they prayed in his name, that as we prayed in his name, that our joy would be multiplied. And so he says to us today, this is his word, his question to us today, do you now believe? If, that, if the answer to that question is yes, then take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Jesus, my prayer in your name is that everyone in this room and hearing the sound of my voice on the internet somehow would answer the question, do you now believe with yes? Yes, Jesus, we believe that there is joy in you that transcends and transforms any sorrow or pain that we will experience in this life. And we take heart of your words that in this world we will have trouble. Thank you that you haven't lied to us. That's all of our experience, that we have trouble in this world. And so since we know that you don't lie to us about the reality of the universe, that there's trouble in this world, Jesus, I pray that you would give us faith to also believe you when you say that you have overcome the world. 
And that if we'll trust in you, we are in you, and therefore we have overcome the world as well in you. We thank you for your words to us. That we've been crucified in you and we can be raised to new life in you and live in a resurrection power that other people would want to ask us questions about. I pray that that would be true of us. And again, we pray that that would be true of Christians all over the world who are experiencing sorrow that maybe none of us have experienced. Would you keep them in our minds and in our hearts as we pray in your name as we go out from here this week? And we do pray this. In your name, Jesus, Lord of all, we live our lives submitted to you with our hands realizing that we are poor in spirit and we need you. And we do pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.